This is ESPN Crick Info. Bowl at Boys. Hello everyone, it's a new month, it's a new show and welcome to a brand new episode of Bullet Boys here on ESPN Crick Info. Joining me as usual is Mr. Jeffrey Boycott who's relaxing at home after a rather long season. Is it Jeffrey how are you doing? Uh pretty good. Uh, we're quite pleased in England that we beat Australia. I think most people in the world will be pleased about that. They were pretty cocky 2 years ago when uh, they were beating England 5-0. In fact, some of the comments they made were quite unpleasant about the England team. So ah, they had a shock here. We were all quite surprised. We thought uh, Australia were maybe slight favorites, but didn't turn out that way and sport has a habit of as making fools of us all and that's the beauty of it isn't it you can look at uh, what's on a sheet of paper and you look at the teams and you think oh well that looks the best team but somehow in life it doesn't always work out like that and that's brilliant it's brilliant for cricket it's brilliant for us that the spice the you know the unusual the surprise that's what sport is about so we had one this summer and it's nice for uh, for everybody in in great britain because it it it's actually picked everybody up you know it was quite depressing to see our team beaten so badly in australia so it's been a lovely pick me up that's great it always adds to the drama the unusual or unexpected and we've spoken about the ashes a couple of retirements so a few more questions have come on that we'll take them one by one the first was sent by sushant from india he says with the retirement of kumar singhakara there is no active player who has scored 10000 plus runs and interestingly there is no bowler having taken 500 plus wickets who is playing right now who do you see around the world joining the elite club of more than 10000 runs or more than more than 500 wickets or is this era of legends unlikely to ever be surpassed well the first question i ask is does it really matter about how many runs how many wickets is it that important my answer to that is no We should watch cricket and enjoy the greats when they come along. How long they last? Well, can depend on health. Uh because in years gone by, depending on work commitments as well. Because in the end, you know, they're only statistics. And if we're going to treat statistics as our god and judge players in the past and in the future as well as this present, then everybody in the future is going to be the best because the way cricket is going they're just playing more and more 2020 more and more 50 overs more and more test matches i mean the greats of yesteryear played very little you know there was a time when there was only england australia playing there was no india pakistan sri lanka south africa new zealand so they only played england australia for every two or three years nobody else so if you look at their figures they haven't played many test matches and if you could judge them on that then obviously the current players like kumar are always going to look greater better here's an example you know statistics read the amount of runs and wickets are relevant to the amount of matches you play it's not just the statistics the amount of matches here kumar is one of the great players wonderful player 134 test matches I looked it up. He's had 233 innings, 12,400 runs. Donald Bradman only had 80 innings, a third. 
and he got nearly 7,000 runs. He was four runs short, 6,996. So if you multiply that by three, if he had the same number of innings as, as Kumba Sangakara, he'd have had over 20,000 runs. I'll repeat that, 20,000 runs. He was a genius. I picked the great one, but there are others as well who played very few. Same with the bowlers. So you've got to be careful that you don't judge everything by statistics. Figures are only partly relevant to the greatness of any cricketer. In my opinion, and that's what you're getting, how many matches did they help win is a big factor. And then, how many matches did they help save come second? Then there's the quality of the opposition they played against. Then, you know, were they good just on home pitches or in other countries? What type of pitches did they play on? Covered pitches? Uncovered pitches? We had uncovered pitches in test matches until 1979. And were they good at scoring runs or taking wickets on all types of pitches? Then you've got to look at the laws of the game. And I can't go into all the laws now, but just here's one. Pre-1937, the LBW law was easier to bat against. If any off-break bowler bowled, any nick-back bowler, any in-swing bowler, balls coming in, it was easy. If you played back and got your leg in front of the stumps and it hit you right in front of middle stumps, if the ball pitched outside, I'll repeat this, outside of stump and was hitting middle, it was not out. The ball had to pitch wicket to wicket. So people nipping it back, off-break bowlers, in-swing bowlers, very difficult to get LBWs. So it's easier to bat against them. So people bowl left arm spin, leg spin, outswingers. So when you're making judgments about players, and Kumar, I'm not decrying him, he's a lovely player, wonderful player. But the people of the past, into the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, they didn't play anything like the number of test matches. They couldn't get the amount of wickets or runs that people today do. And conversely, you could say with people like Kumar, well, hang on, he's got a lot of runs in 2020, ODI cricket, 50 over cricket, wonderful player in all forms. Well, that's true. That's a fact. But these other players, yesteryear, didn't have a chance to play one-day cricket. Prior to 1970s, there, were, there was no one-day cricket. The first one-day international was January 1971. So if you go back further than that, as I say, you've got to be careful that you don't judge players. So I, in answer to your question, I don't care about where the next batsman bowler's coming from to take 500 wickets or 10,000 runs. What I look at when a player plays is all those factors. Did he help win? Did he help save? Did he play against fast bowling, spin bowling? Could he cut it on all types of surfaces and try and enjoy him? And then the great thing about cricket is we can all make our personal judgment of who we liked best. And it doesn't matter whether it's me, you, none of us are right all the time. It's just a personal thing. And that's the beauty of it. And you should enjoy players. That's an interesting perspective. And I'm sure Sushant will be mighty pleased with the answer. Boyk's question of the week. 
Let's take the second one now. It was sent by Harsh from Canada. He says, Hi Jeffrey, why are subcontinent players always judged by how they do in Australia, South Africa and England? And players from England or Australia only get judged in their own conditions. For example, we have seen Joe Root perform in swinging conditions and people say he is a great player but he hasn't even been tested in the subcontinent other than his debut which was on a flat pitch. So why do we not give enough credit to players who play well in the subcontinent against the turning ball? Very good question. I'll try to answer it. Only again, in my opinion, some of us ex-players do try to give credit for the skill that's needed to play spin bowling in the subcontinent. I've been there commentating many times. Many of you know that. You've heard me. But here is the catch. Spinners, no matter how good, and you've had some good ones in the subcontinent, spinners don't put you in hospital. Fast bowlers can hurt any batsman, really hurt them. And until helmets came into cricket in the Packer era of 78-9, fast bowlers put lots of fear into a lot of batsmen and tail-enders because at the back of their mind when they went into bat, they knew they could get seriously hurt. The bowler could do physical damage to them, and it played a part in their batting. Psychologically and practically speaking, overcoming the fear of getting hurt was the supreme, quote, test of any batsman. And no matter how good they were, technically, character, mental toughness was probably more important than the technique required to play real pace bowling and today as in the past it still is the biggest test of any batsman even now that helmets are here arm guards chest pads grills on helmets the quality of fast bowling whenever you find one wins test matches in fact it can and does destroy the confidence of many many batsmen it can even go through the team and affect the morale of a team, the morale of a team. For fast bowlers really hurt people. They get into the head. And spinners can't do that the same. Fast bowlers can. At the back of the mind, that fear of getting hurt. And once the nerve of a cricketer goes, he's had it. Fast bowlers will get him every time. So... I'll come back to it. Fast bowling throughout history, throughout cricket, anywhere in the world, from the early days and even today, has destroyed teams and won test matches. Just recently in Australia, when they played on quick pitches, Mitchell Johnson made a right mess of England's batting. Not only the batting, it was psychological as well. The ball was whizzing through 90-odd mile an hour past the head. On the slower pitches in England, he couldn't do that so easily. So he wasn't as effective because he doesn't swing the ball much and he hardly seems it. He has the angle going across them, but it's pace, nastiness, fear of getting hurt. Couldn't do that in England. In Australia, he could. And throughout history, you've had Linwall Miller, all the West Indian fast bowlers. You've had Lily Thompson. You've had Tyson in England, Trulham Stavon. I can go on. Richard Hadley, Imran Khan, great fast bowlers win test matches. And who is the best bowler in the world today? Not a spinner, 
Dale Stain of South Africa. He's quick, nasty, moves the ball, and he would be good in any era he played. Not just now, any era. For me, he's that good. And it's pace. Sorry, I love spinners. It's part of the beauty of the game to see really quality spin. But at the same time, just remember, they don't put you in hospital. Well, that's true. And that brings us to the third question of the show. And this is about the Indian batting lineup. David Doss sent this one uh, via Twitter. He says, I believe you would have had a decent look at both Cheteshwar Pujara and Rohit Sharma. Who do you think is better suited for number three in tests? And is India erring with the spots for these batsmen? Well, personally, I don't think it's a big issue. Who bats three or four? Number three, definitely he needs to be part opener. Because when the opener goes early, you know, at number three, he's got to be like an opener going early on and you play face the new ball. And then maybe later on when he gets in, he can expand like a number four, number five batsman. Um, confidence and form are so important. Both of them have good techniques, what I've seen. Personally, I would go for Pujara. But it depends how the player, each player feels. I come back to my off-use comment, Rahul Dravid, who's the perfect example. Superb technique, wonderful batsman, loved batting at number three, hated opening. He could go in at number three after two or three balls and make runs, no problem. Every time he was put in as an opener, he struggled, or most times. He just couldn't score runs. Now that has to be because it's psychologically, it's in the head. He's got the technique, the temperament, the concentration, the patience, everything about him. But it's in the head. So it's psychological. So you've got to ask these two players, I would, Captain, listen. And either of you fancy number three? And that's the key. Do they fancy it? Alright, and that brings us to the fourth and last question of this episode. Wasim from the UAE sentence. He says, Jeffrey, we saw a lot of no balls not being called recently in the Ashes and even in the tests between Sri Lanka and India. A lot of them were huge and could have been spotted easily, but the umpires check for them only when a wicket falls. Do you think that's a good idea? And what do you think is a solution for this? Should the third umpire be allowed to tell the on-field umpires whenever he wants to? Well, it's, a, it's an old chestnut that's never going to change, I think. I am of the same opinion as Sir Donald Bradman, Richie Benno and Ian Chappell. I liked the back foot rule for bowlers. It gave umpires a fraction more time to look up and make judgments on what the ball did at the batsman's end. And so hopefully with a little more time they would make better decisions, re always having to appeal to the DRS. At the moment, I think the umpires feel under more scrutiny than ever from TV, from Hawkeye on TV, from Snicko on TV, and sometimes Hotspot when it gets it right. And I think they're under pressure to get decisions right because they know if those decisions are challenged by the players, they could be overturned. And even if they're not challenged, television will slow motion them and show them again and again. And they are worried about making mistakes. And if they make mistakes, 
and it's overturned, or if they make mistakes and the player doesn't appeal through the DRS, but television shows it's a mistake, then they feel somewhat embarrassed. It affects them personally. They feel they, they've been a failure in their job. And I can understand that. That's a human thing to, to, to not want to be anything less than perfect. None of us are perfect, but you've got to try for that, haven't you? And they don't want to be shown up to have got decisions wrong. So I think what they're doing, they're getting a bit careless, a bit sloppy, shall we say. Uh, use whatever word you want. I don't want it to be nasty word, but they're getting where they, they're so concerned about looking to the batsman's end to try and make sure they get the decision right, that they're forgetting to do the first job, which is looking to see if the bowler's bowling a legal delivery or a no ball. And I think that's what the problem is. <laughs> Look, younger people out there who have never played under or saw or umpired under the back foot rule have no idea what I'm talking about. But it did give umpires more time to look down and then look up and focus on the batsman's end. I'll just read something here I looked up, or somebody will put it nicely. Ian Chappell wrote this some years ago. He wrote, In 1962, the no-ball law was changed to a front-foot one from one that previously used the back-foot as the guide. This was the administrator's answer to the perceived problem of dragging, where bowlers occasionally delivered the ball with their front-foot in advance of the batting crease while still adhering to the back-foot regulations. Prior to the law change, in, in 529 test matches, there had only been 15 instances of 20 or more no-balls bowled in a match. There have been more than 1,500 test matches since that momentous change, and no less than 803 instances where the no-ball count has reached that same level. And that's the problem. You know, they try to stop draggers, people who put the foot behind the line, and then they drag past the line so that the front foot landed ahead of the batting crease. So really, they were getting an unfair advantage. The old pros in England, the umpires in England, who had seen dragging, knew all about it. They used to come to people like Freddie Truman and draw a mark 12, 14 inches behind the back line, parallel with the wickets. Fred, that's your line. And Fred had to land his foot behind that mark. Otherwise, they called him for a no-ball because they knew he dragged up to the line. So they made sure that his front foot did not land ahead of the batting crease. It was a simple way of doing it, and it worked. There were, very, there were a few draggers around, not many. And now, if you look around, there's hardly anybody drags. So the front foot roll, well, is unnecessary. But asking the administrators to change and go back, don't waste your time waiting for it, because it ain't going to happen. All right, four good questions, insightful answers, which means it's the end of this episode of Bullet Boyks. The, a pretty lean phase of cricket is coming up. The month of September doesn't have many matches. So send in your questions and feedback about 
some technical questions if you have something about the history of the game and Jeffrey Boycott will join us again in two weeks from now to take all of those. Until then, goodbye and good luck. You are listening to ESPN Crick Info. 